Good morning. Good to see you today. It's pretty quiet in here, hey? That's all right. Um, uh, some of our, we have a, a number of medical people here this morning and paramedical people, I think, uh, maybe you're going to get a, appreciate this little story. Hopefully the rest of you will too. But I heard about an older man with, uh, who had an upset stomach who went to the doctor, said, Doc, my stomach is giving me terrible problems. It hurts. I feel bloated all the time. And I have bad gas. He said, the only saving grace is that, you know, when I, when I break wind, it doesn't stink. And I can also let them out silently so it doesn't bother anyone. In fact, since I've been in here, in your office, I, I've, I've kind of, I've, I've broken wind five times and you haven't noticed a thing. So that part is good, but my stomach still hurts. Can you please help me? Doctor thought for a moment and he gave him uh, a few uh, little white pills and he said, take one of these every day for a week and then come back and see me again. So the next week, the man comes back to the doctor and says, I don't know what was in those pills, but I don't feel any better. In fact, the problem has gotten worse. Not only does my stomach still hurt, but my gas now stinks something awful. And he says, but now my only saving grace is that I can sometimes get away with it because they're still silent, but this is not moving in the right direction. And the doctors responded, no, 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 we're making progress. Now that your sinuses are clear, We'll, we'll, we'll work on your hearing next, and then we'll take care of your stomach issues. So, what does this have to do with Revelation 2 and 3? We're, we're concluding this series today in these couple of chapters on these seven letters to seven churches of Revelation, and us, they're for us. We're concluding with a church that had a total lack of self-awareness and of just how offensive they were to Jesus. You see, this church's assessment of things and Jesus' assessment of things were completely at odds with one another. Um, Pastor Matt has, uh, in his preaching in this series, he has referred to a, a couple of times what's called the mushy middle. Uh, essentially, it's cultural Christianity versus radical Christianity. Those who claim to follow Christ, they, they claim to be morally upright, but they look, sound, act, and live no differently than anyone else in the world. You know, they don't oppose the gospel, but they don't promote it either. Um, they think the Bible has some good stuff in it, but they don't love and hunger and thirst for God's word and for God himself. They want their kids to grow up morally good, but not necessarily missional. It's just a little too risky, too radical. Uh, they find some space in their busy lives for uh, the things of God and his people, the church, but they don't really uh, renovate their whole lives around the cause of the gospel. And if you've ever wondered what Jesus thinks about that kind of Christianity, cultural Christianity, you don't need to wonder anymore because our text this morning tells us, Jesus said, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's a kind of Christianity that Jesus finds distasteful and offensive. The, the, his assessment is much different than ours. And the original language in our text, when it uses the word spit, 
uh, I, I, the translators are actually uh, toning it down quite a bit because it literally means to spew. This is projectile vomiting. That's what Jesus thinks of a church that is lukewarm. Now, I'm going I'm to warn you, today's message is going to be hard-hitting. It's going to be hard-hitting for me, <laughs> and it has been already, because Jesus uh, pulls no punches with those that he loves. That's why he tells us these things. So, Revelation 3, 14 to 22. Let's get into the text, and then we're going to look at it a little closer. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot, cold, nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so so be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, Father, I pray you would give us ears today to hear what, what you are saying to us by, uh, through your word and by your Holy Spirit as applied to our lives. Lord, we need those kind of ears. Um, this this uh, letter is not just to Laodicea, it's for Central Community Church. It is for all of our churches today, so help us to pay attention. I, inv- I invite you, Lord, to... Uh, according to the promises of your word, to do what it is that you want to do and say this morning. Lord, you can reveal new truth to us. Uh, not new, new truth, but truth that maybe we've seen for the first time. Um, you, you bring comfort to us, but your spirit also brings conviction. And in any way, Lord, that you see fit, would you work among us today? In Jesus' name, amen. So now Laodicea was famous for three things. And that's why Jesus talks uh, in this text the way he does. It was known for banking, medicine, and clothing. So it had a banking center. Um, remember last week we talked about uh, the, the church uh, before that had, um, it was in an earthquake and volcano zone. Well, this whole region was plagued by that. And so there was a devastating earthquake that hit Laodicea in 61 A.D., Uh, Some of the neighboring cities uh, surrounding Laodicea, they actually accepted help from the empire. So they called upon Rome. It's no different than our governments today when there's a crisis that happens, a state of emergency is declared, provincial and federal governments will step in to help. Laodicea said, no, uh, we don't need your help. We refuse your help. It had a, the, the, the town, the city had a spirit of independence of self-dependence and reliance. The, the medical center was famous for, guess what? 
It's treatment of the eyes. It had developed a salve that was healing for eyes. The, the clothing um, uh, trade, uh, practice, whatever industry in this town, was famous for tunics that were made of local black wool. Tacitus, that was a, he was a Roman historian, referring to this earthquake that happened in 61 AD, he said, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. So the city and the church were not all that different. The church saw themselves as self-sufficient, but the text has shown us that the church wasn't uh, self-aware. They made a wrong assessment of what it was that they needed. In their minds, they were rich, they were prosperous, they needed nothing. They had money, banking center, they had nice clothes, they had a good health care system. And Jesus' assessment, remember, the, the, the church in Thyatira, it's a, it says, the, uh, describing Jesus, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, uh, Jesus has eyes that can see right to the heart, to the core of things, and his word penetrates and divides, you know, joint and marrow, can get right to the issue of things. He sees things as they truly are. He said, you think that you're rich, you're prosperous, and you need nothing, when in fact that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. These are all words that would have impacted them deeply, where they're at, given their culture and their industry. Have you ever um, made an assessment of things wrongly before you bought something and you realize later, oh my goodness, I was looking at all the wrong things, this was a huge mistake. Has anyone ever done that? You totally missed, it's like you thought this is what you needed, but it wasn't really. So, uh, Someone in our family actually bought a vehicle this way, and I, I should throw myself under the bus because I'm sure I've done this before. But uh, the, their assessment was it has, to, it, it has to meet these standards for our growing family. You know, car seats are important, space, all, you know, all of this kind of thing, um, not realizing that uh, they were looking, they, they overlooked all kinds of other criteria which are now coming back to bite them really bad and realized our assessment here actually wasn't the best. And there are problems. So this city and this church had a wrong assessment of what mattered, uh, of what health looked like, of where sufficiency came from, of what the church was to be about. And Jesus comes along and says, actually, you know what, your assessment and mine are completely different. Let's work on these things and then we'll get to this. So Laodicea was one of three uh, sister cities. Now this is really important to understand the text as well. There was Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae that were all close to one another. Heropolis had hot springs. So Heropolis, Harrison, hot springs. Healing waters, healing waters. H for hot. Colossae for cold. Colossae was known for its cold, refreshing water. Laodicea, Neither, lukewarm. So this is interesting, hey? Heropolis, hot, Colossae, cold, Laodicea, lukewarm, HCL. (laughs) Laodicea needed to have their water channeled in from these sister cities. Um, 
by way of stone aqueducts. So they had these aqueducts made of stone to channel uh, this water into their city. So by the time water came to them from Heropolis, it wasn't hot, it was lukewarm. By the time water came to them from Colossae, it was not cold, it had warmed up. It was lukewarm. And so visitors, when they came to this city, they would take a drink and they would be like, this is gross, and they would spit the water out, literally. Sometimes these verses get interpreted to mean this. Jesus would prefer, and he says, that you are either hot or cold, meaning I want you to be either all on fire, hot for me, or not at all. I want you just to be completely opposed to me. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's a correct interpretation of this text because why would Jesus say to the church, I would prefer that you be in cold opposition to me? Doesn't make sense. Instead, I, I think this is what Jesus is saying. Hot and cold are both very, very useful. I wish that you were one or the other. Pick, like hot, bringing, having those healing qualities soothing, healing, good for you, and the other to bring refreshment. Cold, refreshing. See, some people take a hot bath, some people do the cold bath for medicinal reasons too, right? Or for drinking, like it's good to have a hot drink or a cold drink, right? But to be lukewarm makes Jesus want to vomit because lukewarmness badly misrepresents the life-changing power of the gospel to bring healing and to bring refreshment to us. And that's what the gospel does. And Jesus says, because you are neither, you're distasteful, you're offensive, you're sickening, and you don't even know it. So, with all of that in mind, pretty uh, heavy stuff, hey? Pretty light for a Sunday morning. Uh, we're going to look at three things. What are some signs of lukewarm Christianity? We're going to take a few hard hits. Then we're going to look at the cure for lo- lukewarm Christianity, and we're going to move towards hope. And then we're going to look at an incredible promise to those who overcome and who conquer lukewarm Christianity in the same way that Jesus conquered, and we're going to end on a high note. Some hard hits, the hope, and the high note. All right, here we go. The danger here is that we are completely unaware of what's going on. And so we all have blind spots and I'm, there are things in my life that I'm unaware of and I value, even though it's hard to hear, I value people who, who come to me and say, Elwin, are you aware of this? If you're not, this is the way it comes across to people and I want to be told that, especially when it comes to my relationship with Jesus and other people because that's what matters the most, to love God and to love others And so if we're missing things, please tell me so that I'm not lukewarm. If we're missing things as a church, please tell us, Jesus, so that we're not lukewarm. We should either be hot, healing, cold, refreshing. Here are the signs of of lukewarm Christianity, six things. Remember, some hard hits coming here. Lukewarm Christians crave the acceptance of others more than God. And this really is a root of a lot of things where we so desperately want to be needed, um, accepted, valued by other people that we put that as a higher priority than our relationship with Jesus. When, and, and this is true for me. Pa- pastors, in fact, are the worst at people-pleasing. We're the worst at it. Maybe the best at it. I don't know what the word is. 
when we make decisions, it's often we leave God out of the equation. Is that true for you? It's just that the primary concern is what others are going to think. It's not that we reject God. We just don't think about him as much as others in our decision-making and our activities and all of that kind of stuff because we want others to like us. That's a sign of lukewarm Christianity. We need to be concerned first about what God thinks. Not what our friends think. It's important to listen to your spouse, but they can be wrong too. Is what you are thinking and the decisions you are making rooted in God's word and what he would say to you is applied by his spirit? Secondly, a sign of lukewarm Christianity is that Christians, lukewarm Christians, love their sin. They don't really hate their sin. You know, how, how close can I get to sin and get away with it? <clears throat> so, um, Marcy and I and my siblings, uh, most of them anyway, are going through uh, Nikki Gumbel's uh, devotional uh, on the YouVersion Bible app so we can all see each other's progress and hold each other accountable. It's really kind of cool. And um, devotional for day 60, which was, I think, yesterday. We're 60 days into a new year. Um, was, was, uh, Nikki Gumbel was talking about our sin and putting it into perspective, actually he was talking about the cross and why Jesus had to die. Why was it necessary that Jesus went to the cross? And, and Nikki says this, you cannot fully understand the cross unless you understand why it was necessary. Why is the cross necessary? Because God hates sin. He hates it. He doesn't hate us. <laughs> Don't hear that. He doesn't hate us. He hates sin, and he hates the effects of sin in our lives. He hates the relational breakdown here and now. He, he hates the destructive patterns that we implement into our lives in order to deal with things. He hates the ultimate penalty of sin, which is death and eternal separation from him. He hates it so much that he said, you know what, there's no human alive that I've created that's gonna solve this issue, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna send my son. And I'm gonna put him on that cross and in their place to pay for that penalty of sin, which is death and separation from God. I'm gonna make that happen. That's how much I hate sin and that's how much I love people. And we need to have the same perspectives that, that God does on sin. And, and, and we, and I include myself in that, we flirt with the edges of that way too much. Uh, Francis Chan said this, uh, lukewarm Christians don't really want to be saved from sin, they just want to be saved from the penalty of sin. They love what the world loves, but they don't want to go to hell. I, I, I don't really want to be saved from my sins because I, I have to admit it, I love them too much. I just want fire insurance. Okay, enough of that. Number three, lukewarm, is it, is it hitting hard enough already? Number three, lukewarm Christians rarely share their faith. And you know what? These build on each other. 
They consider themselves Christians, but they don't want to make other people feel awkward talking about religion, so they rarely bring it up or talking about their faith or talking about Jesus. And the fact is that talking about Jesus will separate you from people. It'll isolate you, and it will cost you something. That's why we rarely bring it up. Or we rarely bring it up because we don't feel worthy because we're, we're, we're stuck in a puddle of our own sin. Or we want others to accept us and like us so we just don't want to go there because it'll mean that our relationships will change. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but it, it, it happened to me once very significantly in high school. I lost a relationship with someone and I was silent and the door was opened wide up for me and this person came to me and said, you're different, why? I just can't figure you out. You don't do everything that everybody else that I'm f- friends with d- does. What's wrong with you? And I said, well, here's what's wrong with me. <laughs> Maybe here's what's right with me. I said, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I go to church. And, uh, and in his word, it tells me that I shouldn't participate in these things. They're like, oh. And that was that. Done. So the question here is really, do we actually believe that the gospel is true? How can we believe that what Jesus said about eternity is true, that there's a heaven and a hell, and that those who come to faith in Jesus will have their sin forgiven and spend eternity with him forever in heaven, but that those who don't will will spend eternity apart from God, eternally separated in hell? How can we believe that and not speak about it? Here's an, here's an amazing quote by a person named Penn Gillette, Penn and Teller, who said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, How much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that a truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. (laughs) And this is more important than that. Number four, lukewarm Christians don't give sacrificially. Okay, so if you thought my opening joke was offensive, we're about to take it to another level. (laughs) Because yes, I'm talking about money, and there is nothing that offends people more than when the preacher interferes with the wallet. But we shy away from talking about this because people get offended, which is probably why Jesus talked about money more than anything else. Lukewarm Christians give when it makes them look good or feel good. And I'm no different than anyone. We can give for the wrong motives. We can give. But, but if, if, if it's brought up from the front, people find it distasteful. Ah, he's always talking about money. I challenge you to read this and discover how much Jesus talks about our possessions and our money. Challenge you. 
And, and I want to say this. If you find talking about money distasteful or offensive, then it's probably your idol. Because these are the, the things... <laughs> the things that bother us are the things that we struggle with the most. So when you hit a nerve with somebody on a certain topic, you know that that is their struggle. If my tooth is bothering me really bad, and I've had that before, I've had, uh, what are these things called? Uh, root canals and uh, these replacements, implants, what are, what are they? crowns, whatever. The dentist knows what they are. It's not my issue. I just want to be able to chew and eat food and not be in pain, right? Okay, so I, I, I'm, I'm an uptight person. may not seem like it, but I am. And so I, when I get anxious, I clench a lot, right? Anybody do that? Like bite down on your jaw really hard? And uh, I do it a lot during the day. I have to be careful. But at nighttime, I was doing it so much, much the dentist said to me, man, you need a night guard. So I've been wearing one of those religiously ever since. I cracked two of my bottom molars, right? Cracked them because I was biting so hard. Didn't realize they were cracked until they got infected. And I tell you, when that touches a nerve, you know you have a problem. And I literally could not even sit down, let alone sleep, until those were fixed. Like, that's no lie. It was that much pain. So in other words, the things that bother us the most are the things we struggle with most, most the things that touch a nerve. You know what's interesting is the happiest people that I've met are the ones who are the most generous. They are, they're generous. Lukewarm Christians rarely give in a sacrificial way. Uh, and we give God our leftovers, not our first and our best. And God, throughout Scripture, has asked us to give first and to give the best. And so make it a part of your routine. With your income, say, I'm going to set aside this first, and then the rest I'm going to try to find a way to live on. And I, and I counsel people that all the time, like in pre-marriage counseling, when I do you know, marriages and things like that, I said, you know what? If, if you leave giving to the last, last you're not going to give because it won't be there. You will spend it on something. Set aside the best and the first for God. Then make it a priority to save for the rainy day when that vehicle is not what you thought it was. <laughs> it needs a replacement. <laughs> and then budget accordingly and live within those means, Right? There, now you all got a little bit of my finance session in my pre-marriage counseling. Malachi says this, that the priests gave an offering to God, but they kept the best animals for themselves and they gave to God literally the rest and the runts and assumed that God would be glad that they even gave something, but you know what God called it? He called it evil. And it's not a coincidence that Laodicea, out of the seven churches, was the wealthiest and it is those who are accomplished and praised by the world, those who are financially secure, who are at most risk of being lukewarm, self-sufficient. Number five, lukewarm Christians only turn to God when they need something. See how these build on one another? Um, it's all right when a need brings you to God. I mean, I think sometimes God will allow the struggle and the suffering in our life because we, we, then we recognize, oh my goodness, how much I need him. 
I need to press into God. I need, I, I need him in my life for everything all the time. But lukewarm Christians go to him uh, like they, they view God as a genie God. If I just spend a little bit of time with God here then, and, 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 and do the right thing, then God will give me what I need. Not really interested in a relationship that goes deep with Jesus, but just to use God to get something or to avoid something that you don't like, like God's justice or suffering. There's no fire or passion for Jesus. Number six, lukewarm Christians don't live with eternity in mind. You know what? It shocks me, actually, every time I see Christians living essentially as atheists, practical atheists, when it pertains to life and death. When our attitude, our disposition, our feelings towards death looks no different than the unbeliever. That's concerning. Now that doesn't mean, given the the prayer request that we have had this morning, that when there's something that is life-threatening, that doesn't mean that it causes us to our heart rate to go up. And it's like there's a a worry or an anxiety that sits in. But what do we do with that? We turn that over to Jesus and ask for his help in that circumstance because I really need him at this point, really need him. It's scary, it's overwhelming to face uh, your own mortality, at least initially, but that's different than a paralyzing fear about the future that does not have God in mind and that does not say, God, you're in control. When we have a fear of death, a paralyzing fear, and an avoidance of death, even talking about death at all costs, it's frankly unhealthy and it's unbiblical. Paul said, to live is Christ. Paul didn't have a death wish, but he said this, to die is gain. He said, I want to live because if I'm here, I can help you. Like, that's what I want. I want to be here so I can help you, church. I want to live. But if I die, it's an upgrade. How, how many of us, like, go to a hotel or book a flight and just wish when you go into the lobby or get on that flight, please give me an upgrade, give me an upgrade. I Like, I'll... I'm okay with the standard room, but the deluxe would be amazing. I'm okay with the seat and economy, but my goodness, if they bump me to business or first class, wow, that would be a great flight. But we don't want heaven. Imagine that. Heaven is the ultimate upgrade. (laughs) Heaven is the ultimate upgrade. That was my mom's perspective. It's been an interesting week for me because a week ago today, my mom passed away, a year ago. So first anniversary of my mom's passing. And I found out just yesterday, so my brothers, uh, my brother drove from Calgary to Saskatoon and they spent the day, the night together in Saskatoon. My brother, uh, they're twins. They have a close relationship. He came up from Karenport and uh, they went to my mom's grave and then they visited... Um, my grandpa's grave, John Andres. And uh, I, knew, I didn't know this till yesterday. My grandpa and my mom, so my mom's dad and his daughter passed away on the same day, February 23. 
His was 1973. I was a three-year-old. Didn't know my grandpa. And uh, my mom passed away last year. And today is the one-year anniversary of her burial where we put her body in the ground. But we put her body in the ground, and this is the way my mom lived with such incredible hope that one day there will be a resurrection. And that to be absent from the body, Scripture says, is to be present with the Lord. That's an upgrade, folks. And I rejoice with my mom and my grandpa who are living the dream. That's what they long for. Do we long for that? Again, I'm not not talking about a death wish. (laughs) I'm just talking about a healthy perspective on death and on living. And at the end of the day, lukewarm Christians are just no different than the rest of the world. Neither hot nor cold, just kind of uh, indistinct, even offensive to Jesus. And see, we can go through our lives doing everything like everyone else. The same perspective on funerals. But what about smaller things? Watching the same movies, listening to the same music as the world, raising our kids the same way as the world, spending our money in the same way as an unbeliever, viewing retirement like everyone else does, when crisis hits a marriage, doing what everyone else does, prioritizing the same things everyone else does. And when we do that, our lives are not distinct. They're not hot. They're not cold. They don't bring healing. They don't bring refreshment to others. It's just blah. And Jesus does not like that. (sighs) These are the people Jesus calls lukewarm. And friends, when I rattle off a list like that about movies and money and retirement and all of these things, trust me, I... I can do that because they are things that are part of my thinking every day. They're things that challenge me every day. And sometimes those things win in my life and they're a struggle. Do you relate to the, that list? Are they, does, that rela- does that touch a nerve at all? Hope so. And so Jesus' words here shatter some of our categories of what we think and what Jesus thinks about us and that's a good thing. We need to wake up to some real spiritual realities that his ear, Jesus' ears and his eyes and his nose are going to determine what's really going on <laughs> and we don't trust our own. And so, so Jesus making the diagnosis and says, okay, there's something offensive going on here. We have to correct this situation. He offers some hope and some good news. That's where we're going next. Okay, friends, this gets better. Uh, Let's talk about a cure for lukewarm Christianity. Let's read again from verse 18. Jesus said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What's the cure? Three things that are going to be highlighted for you. The first is to buy from me. So we think we're rich, but Jesus says, no, 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 you're not. You need, you're poor. You need to buy from me. And what we buy from Jesus is not something we pay for. It comes by grace. The price has been paid already. We need to just receive it. Jesus has true riches. He has clothing that covers shame. And he alone is able to give spiritual sight to the blind. In the same devotions that I I read just yesterday, day 60 in our devotional reading, was from Mark 10, where Jesus heals a man born blind, or blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is the section and, and then, and, and it's, it's astounding in this passage, uh, Bartimaeus, he, um, he recognizes, he hears, and he hears from other people that Jesus is passing by and he starts calling on him, Jesus, Jesus. People are telling him to be quiet. And then all of a sudden, somebody says, wait a minute, Jesus is calling you, he's calling you, go, go, go. And, uh, and, and Jesus, and Bartimaeus says, uh, or I think Jesus said, what do you want from me? And Bartimaeus says, if you are willing. I want my sight. Jesus says, if, if I'm willing, I am more than willing. What do you want? It's like, I want to see. Help my unbelief. I'm sorry, Lord, I didn't believe you. Help my unbelief. And Jesus says, you're going to see. And his eyes were opened. And, and, And Jesus said to him, your faith has made you well. Do you know what the word well is? It's the word, the root word is the word sozo, which we get our, our word salvation from. Your faith has not just given you sight, it has saved you. It has opened your eyes. Friends, have your eyes been opened to Jesus? Has he given you spiritual sight? Have you bought from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? what you need to do today. Jesus' heart towards those who think they have no need isn't to bring them harm, but to help them. He wants to open our eyes. He is willing. Secondly, Jesus said in this text, be zealous and repent. Here's that word again, repent. Five out of seven churches are told to repent. The only two that didn't need to repent were the churches that were poor and persecuted. The other five were self-sufficient, Laodicea, the wealthiest of them all. And it's the one Jesus ends with. And he says, repent. Repent simply means to change direction and to go from our way of doing things, my way of doing things, to doing it Jesus' way and to follow him and his lead in our lives. That's repentance. To say, Jesus, your assessment of my condition is true. I am pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I need you. I need you for spiritual sight. I need you for everything. I need you to clothe me. The further we go with Jesus and the more spiritually mature we come, the more it seems that we digress. Let me explain this but we're not actually. Came from a book that a few of us are reading. Gonna put a plug in again for Monday mornings over at Hemlock or A&W. We were finished this book called, um, grow, what is it, Growing in Humility? No, 
the blessing of humility on, uh, on the uh, Beatitudes. And, and, the, and the chapter ended with the fact that we need to press in more and more with Jesus and follow his way of living for us. And the author there, he said, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote at the beginning of his ministry after he, his eyes literally were opened and he was saved by Jesus, he wrote that he was the least of the apostles. And then he went on to write later that he is the very least of all saints. Saint meaning just Christian, somebody who follows Jesus. I am the very least. And finally, later in his life, He's an old man now, and he says, you know what? I'm not just the least of all apostles and the very least of all saints. I am the foremost and the chief of all sinners. Listen, Paul was not digressing. He was making huge progress in his life. He was seeing things the way God sees them and never ceasing to repent of his sin. Are we doing the same? The issue is not whether or not we're going to sin in our lives. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The issue is whether we're going to deal with it and repent and come to Jesus for healing and refreshment. And the next solution Jesus has is buy from me, be zealous, and open the door. Open the door. Embrace Jesus. He is the cure. You know, this this passage is used quite often uh, in the context of evangelism but it's actually not. It is in context for the church. It's not bad to use it in evangelism, but that's actually not the the context. The call is for the church when we hear Jesus knocking to open the door and to let him in. How do we buy gold and clothes and get salve from us if we're broke and we're naked? I mean, if I'm broke and I'm naked and I need clothing, I'm, I'm gonna send someone else to get it. I'm not leaving the house until all of a sudden, whoop, there's a knock at the door. Oh, it's Jesus. Oh, he has a set of clothes for me. Hmm. He has gold for me. He has salve for my eyes. This is what grace is all about, opening the doors and letting him in as opposed to going out and trying to do it on our own. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. So we're, inviting, we're to invite Jesus into the very areas where we exclude him. And you know what he says he'll do? And we're gonna end with this. We're gonna end with his promises sort of a transition till we get to this promise is he said, you know what, when you do that, I will come in and I will share a meal with you. That's what Jesus says. I will fellowship with you and I will share a meal with you. Now Jesus is speaking my language. (laughs) Isn't that right? I love sitting down and sharing a meal with people. It's it's intimate. It's, It's fellowship. It's friendship. It's nourishing. It's awesome. And that's what Jesus says. I'll come in and I'll sit at the table with you. But you know what else I'm going to do? His promise to us is those who conquer will be lifted up to his throne. Verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. 
This is blowing some categories here. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We've quoted Daryl Johnson before. Uh, He wrote a commentary on Revelation, but Johnson says this. This last of the seven messages to the churches is at once the hardest hitting and the most inviting. Jesus expresses his displeasure in almost violent terms, and here Jesus offers the greatest blessings imaginable. On the one hand, I will spit you out of my mouth. On the other hand, come and eat with me, and I with you, and you will sit with me on my throne. There is no greater threat, and there is no greater promise. And you know what comes next? So we're in Revelation 2 and 3. Go home and read Revelation 4. Immediately, the Apostle John has a vision of the throne room of God, and he is so overwhelmed with what he sees, he's trying to write it down, but he just can't describe it. And he talks about uh, someone sitting on a throne that looks like he's glowing like diamonds and rubies, and he's trying to describe God. And, and there's lightning coming from the throne and there's pillars of fire and there's roaring thunder and there's a sea of glass and there's 24 elders in robes bowing down, taking their crowns and casting them on the floor before the throne. And there's seven torches and seven spirits representing the perfection of the Holy Spirit who's also there. And we see four creatures with six wings and eyes all over their bodies and they never stop crying, never stop crying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there are a hundred million angels bowing down and worshiping God who is on this throne. And Jesus says, all of this is happening around the throne. And if you overcome and get out of your lukewarm state, you will sit with me on that throne. Whew. I can't imagine when the most holy of God's created beings are bowing in worship, he's inviting us to sit on that throne. And am I really gonna look at all of that and then look at my lukewarm life and go, I don't know, I think complacency makes sense. I mean, I'm just gonna kind of stay apathetic towards God. You know, it's like, that's cool, I'm, I'm good with that. Like, What? Jesus wants to see us to see on one hand that if that's my mindset, it makes him sick and he will spit us out. And yet on the other hand, that he stands at the door and knocks and if we hear his voice and open the door, he will come in and share a meal with us and invite us to reign with him forever. And the, the author of Hebrews says, today, you know, don't be rebellious like they were in the days of Moses. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts but respond to him. And that's my invitation to you. Back in the days of the rebellion, in the days of Moses, who led the people out of their bondage, Moses, who rejected all of the affluence and the wealth and the prestige and the clothing and the money of Egypt, having been raised in a prince, mothered by the the very daughter of Pharaoh himself, said, I don't want any of it. I want what God has for me and I'm willing to go to the wilderness to get it because God has something much more valuable for my life. Jesus said to the church of Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty. You have nothing, but you're rich. He said to Laodicea, you say that you're rich, but you're poor. (laughs) You're poor. You have lost sight of what really matters. 
Let's conclude this way. There's a, there's a poem and then a couple of questions. It's a short little poem that goes like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So here's some questions. So Bill and Heather, come and join me as we close in a song. I want you to reflect on some questions beforehand, and I want you to consider moving towards the side to pray with someone, because this is a hard-hitting message, and I would trust, I would, my expectation today is that we would all come out of our lukewarm state and be hot or cold, refreshing and healing. Have you been excluding Jesus from areas of your life? Is he on the outside looking in, desperately knocking, and, and he's still out there? Number two, what are the areas that are lukewarm, that you are lukewarm? Number three, will you pray for Jesus to give you the strength in your areas of weakness? Because we all have them. Number four, will you embrace the reproof and the discipline of Jesus? You know what? Don't leave here today feeling beat up because God does not discipline out of anger. He disciplines out of love, and he wants us to be different. He loves us. Number five, are you willing to pray for Jesus to do whatever it takes to get you on fire for him, to be healing hot or refreshingly cold, but never lukewarm? And will you help, will you commit yourself to help others on that same journey? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.